Hello, my friends, and welcome to another sermon in our series on the life of David and me. My name is Dan Forrest, and today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 27. And in this chapter, we're going to learn about David's A-team and what they've been up to in the wilderness. Well, before we get into that, we're going to watch a bit of the intro to one of my favorite shows of the 80s, The A-Team. Check it out. In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. <laughs> okay, because uh, I think the theme song is probably copyrighted and I don't want to get flagged on YouTube or Facebook, so I'm actually going to cut the music here and I'm going to describe the members of the A-Team if you've never seen this show before. So here we got the intro. This guy here coming up is John Hannibal Smith. Where is he? There he is. He's the leader of the group and he's often in these ridiculous disguises, smoking a cigar. He's always got these wacky plans that... In the, in the end, they always come together. This next guy is Templeton Peck, often called Face or Face Man. He's a smooth-talking con man who tricks people into getting vehicles and other useful objects from them. So he's always scamming people. <laughs> this here is the pilot, Howling Mad Murdoch. He is clinically insane, and he lives in a mental institution. And every episode, they have to break him out so that he can fly their plane or helicopter or whatever they've got. And finally, this is B.A. Baracus, played by Mr. T. He's the muscle of the group. He's also their mechanic. He often fixes things by bending metal with his bare hands. And a running gag throughout the show is he's afraid of flying. So they have to knock him out or they have to drug him every episode in order to get him in the air to the place that they need to go. And often they drug his milk because he just loves milk. <laughs> this show was absolutely ridiculous. But as a kid, I loved it. I don't know why they were called the A-Team because they were the rejects of society and their actions were always morally questionable. You know, we have these four guys who were court-martialed. One of them is clinically insane. One is always conning people and scamming them out of their vehicles and weapons. Another one is super strong, but he loves milk and is afraid of flying. And there's so much violence in this show. Each act of violence is just some wacky contraption that they put together by the end, MacGyver style. I don't know why they're called the A-Team. They're not even the B-Team or the C-Team. They should probably be the D-Team or even the F-Team. Well, in 1 Samuel 27, we learn a little bit more about David's A-Team. But I also think that they're no A-Team either. These guys are the bottom of the barrel and they're engaged in all kinds of morally questionable behavior. These are not the, the best and the brightest, but how do we respond to them? And I'll admit, as I've been reading through Samuel with you all, I don't know what to do with David and his A-team. They kind of disgust me. I'm often disappointed in their actions, and I'm surprised God doesn't just wipe them out of the wilderness. And that's how I felt reading chapter 27 as I was preparing for the sermon. But thankfully, Eugene Peterson in his book, Leap Over a Wall, helped me see and appreciate what's really going on with David's A-team. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. 
The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Okay, we're going to stop there just for a bit. And just let's just remind us all, David has been on the run from Saul for probably 10 years at this point. He's been hiding out in different wilderness areas, trying to survive, trying to find some place to settle down, trying to just get through each day until Saul stops chasing him. He has faith that one day God is going to establish him as the king of Israel, but he just has to wait and not in a pleasant circumstance. When David first ran away, we read in 1 Samuel 21 that he met up with the king of Gath, Achish. And this is Philistine territory, and David had a reputation for killing tens of thousands of Philistines. And when David discovers Achish's servants, uh, pointing out this to Achish, that that David's known for killing Philistines, David panics. He thinks he's going to be killed. And he pulls a Murdoch from the A-team, and he pretends to be insane. And Akish buys it, and he sends David away with no harm, but also with no help. And after Akish sends David away, we read in 1 Samuel 22, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So here's David's A-team starting to assemble, and it begins with his family, which is pretty incredible because if you remember the earlier stories, they treated David with disdain as the youngest in the family, but now they've come to join him. And look who else joins him. Those in distress, those in debt, and those who are discontented. Not the type of people that you would hire in a job interview. I don't know if you want these people working for you, David. And Peterson describes this group in this way. It isn't what we would call the cream of the crop of Israelite society, more like the dregs from the barrel. Misfits all, it appears. The people who couldn't make it in regular society. Rejects, losers, dropouts. Ouch. So let's get back to our chapter. David's A-team has grown in the 10 years from 400 people to now 600 So David and his 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maoth, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Well, isn't this interesting? The first person that David went to for help 10 years ago was King Achish, and that did not work out so well, but things have changed. Now, David is friends with the enemy. The Philistines are the enemy of God, and they are the enemy of God's people. The Israelites were supposed to drive out every Philistine out of the promised land because they worshipped foreign gods, and they would tempt the Israelites to worship those gods away from the one true God, Yahweh. And Yahweh was right because the Israelites didn't drive them out completely. 
They kept falling for their gods and turning their back on the God who created them and brought them out of the, and brought them out of slavery into his promised land. This is the God who's done so much for them and yet they keep turning to the gods of the Philistines. And now David is friends with the enemy. He is living among them. He is settled down with them. This is so wrong. This is not what David and his men should be doing. They should be fighting against them, not feasting with them or even living with them. But this is what happens in a broken world. King Saul hasn't given David any choice. David is on the run for his life, just like the A-team were. And he has to do some questionable things to survive. And what he does next is even more questionable. Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Malachites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels, and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. So just like the A-team now, David is resorting to violence to solve all of his problems. He needs sheep, he needs cattle, he needs clothes. So he travels south and raids the other enemies of Israel, stealing their stuff, attacking them, and ultimately killing every woman and man in sight. David is vicious, he is ruthless, and he is merciless. He takes what he wants and he leaves bloodshed and dead bodies in his wake. And his questionable activities don't even stop there. Verse 10. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. When when Achish asked David where he's been raiding, David straight up lies about it. He says he's been raiding Israelite towns and stealing from them. So now Achish thinks, David is awesome. He's turned on his own people. And he must be one of us now. And then even look at why David why David said he killed every man and woman is because he didn't want them to tattle on him. That, that was his reason for killing every person. And our story concludes with chapter 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. What? Now David is going to join the Philistines to fight against the people of God, the Israelites? He's willing to go into battle with the Philistines against God's people? I, I, David, what are you doing? Once again, I have such a hard time with this passage. Why isn't God correcting David at all here? God is always calling King Saul out for his sinful behavior. And spoiler alert, he's going to call out King David in the future for everything that happens with Bathsheba. But in this story, and in many of these stories, God is silent. And Peterson points out that there are two common responses to this passage. The first is to moralize it, which is, I'll admit, what I've been doing all along. 
I've been criticizing and condemning David for his spiritual and moral failures. There's a second approach that you can also take. You can secularize David's approach. I'm not sure if this is the approach you took. Some people would applaud David for his use of power and for his shrewd wit to not only survive in the wilderness, but also to thrive. He's put himself in a position of strength and wealth, and he's building up his army to one day take the throne of Israel. But what's interesting here is the story, uh, the storyteller doesn't necessarily say this is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. The, the, the storyteller isn't saying this is good or this is bad. He's just simply saying this is what David did. And the interesting thing is the reason we have these stories is so that we can see that throughout David's life, whether he was doing good things or bad things, God was with him. Everywhere he went, God was with him. Even when David was doing shoddy things, when he was doing things that were questionable, or even when David was being clever and when he was being an amazing warrior, in each of these stories, the common theme, the one thing the storyteller is trying to get through to us throughout the whole thing is Yahweh is with David because David is his anointed one. Yahweh has chosen David not because of his abilities, not because of his status, but just because that was his choice. God chose David because God chose David. That's the only reason. And there's, there's, it doesn't matter what David does. God still chooses him. But there's kind of a difference between David and Saul that's pretty clear in this passage, and it becomes clear in the next chapter as well. The difference between David and Saul is God chose both of them. God chose Saul to be the leader, and he chose David. But he ended up rejecting Saul, not because of Saul's necessarily sinful behavior, but because Saul never maintained a relationship with God. He never reached out to God. He never sought God's direction. He never sought God's provision and help. He just tried to do it on his own all the time. And he would ignore the prophets. He would ignore Samuel. He wouldn't do the things God had asked him to do as far as reaching out to him. You know, if he would have just reached out to him and screwed up, God would have forgiven him and let him keep coming back. Keep coming back. I'll take you back. That's what God does. And that's what God does with David. With David, David screws up. But the difference between David and Saul is David continually comes back to God seeking his help, seeking his forgiveness, seeking his guidance. And in the next chapter, or sorry, in 1 Samuel 28, we see Saul not going to God for help when the Philistines come to attack. In this chapter here, when the Philistines come to attack, they line up against Israel. Saul panics and freaks out. And instead of turning to God, where does he go? He goes to a medium and he seeks help from the ghost, the spirit of Samuel, which is just a weird story because the ghost of Samuel actually appears and talks to Saul. But once again, why is Saul going to a medium? Why is Saul trying to talk to Samuel? Why isn't Saul going straight to God? Why isn't he going to Yahweh, the one who's called him, the one who's the leader of his people? He's the God of the people of Israel. But Saul does not want to go to God. He wants to do things on his own. And that does not lead him in the right direction. But with David, that is what is the case. We find out through all these stories that the primary concern of our spiritual life, of all life, it, is, it isn't actually what we do for God. But it's about what God is doing for us. And it's about whether or not we're willing 
to go to God, to receive what he's given us, to ask him for help, to bow before him. He wants to do all these amazing things for us, even when we've screwed up and done terrible things. We discover that God is faithfully working out our salvation, even when every time we lift a finger, we might be contributing to the wrong side. Now, David is doing all these things to help the Philistines, but yet God is still working through him for his salvation. Now, there's something really interesting that we see in this passage. This, this whole time, I've been criticizing David. I've been criticizing his A-team for their actions. But these are God's people. And Eugene Peterson makes this really incredible point, which I thought I had quoted here. Just one sec. There it is. David's company, even though made up of the distressed, the debtors, and the discontented, was made by God. A people defined not by where they came from or what they did, but by what God did in them and for them. This is an amazing quote because doesn't this describe the church? Doesn't this describe God's people today? We are a messed up group of people. And the funny thing is, as a church, we often try to pretend like we're not. You know, we, we wear nice clothes on Sunday and, and we, we don't tell people what's wrong with our lives. And, and we, every time we have a fault, we hide it. We don't want anyone to know that, you know, we, we did this sinful thing. Even no matter how minor it is, we can't let people know that we're still sinners because that would look bad on our reputation and, and, and we'd be looked down upon. But look at the people that Jesus chose from the very beginning to be his church. Look at who they were. The tax collectors, the sinners. Look at the 12 disciples that he, he selected. Uneducated fishermen. You know, at least one of them was a terrorist. Simon the Zealot. Zealot. The Zealots were terrorists. These were people that enacted violence against the Romans. And, and Jesus chose him to be in his crew. Jesus chose Judas, a betrayer. Someone who he knew from the beginning was going to stab him in the back. And yet Jesus still chose him. Much like how God still chose Saul, even though he knew Saul was going to reject him and go against him, go against his plans. But that's who God is. God is someone who doesn't pick someone based on their abilities or based on their past achievements. He picks people because he picks people. He picks whoever he wants for his own divine purposes. And we don't always understand why he's doing it. But he does it. He picks the people that we wouldn't pick, that we wouldn't want as our A team. We would consider them the D team and the F team. But God considers the A-team. And consider some of these verses. Mark 2, verse 15 to 17. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It sounds a little bit like some of us in the church today when we see you know, Christians going to bars or when you see Christians uh, hanging out with uh, unsavory types. And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's who Jesus' heart is for. Sinners. Not people who are pretending that they are not sinners. Not people who are pretending that they have their life all together, who don't need God. He's come to be with people who need him who need him desperately. And as a result of Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners and the prostitutes and all these random people, 
The Pharisees and other Israelites would say that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And that's not totally true. Obviously, we know Jesus wasn't a glutton and a drunkard, but he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this is kind of an interesting conundrum because when I was in youth group, my youth pastor would say quite often, he would say to us, show me your friends and I'll show you who you are. He'd often say that to make this point that the people that we surround our lives around are going to influence us. They're, they're going to have an influence in our lives. And we need to be cautious about who we have in our inner circle. Who's going to be the ones that are with us 24 hours a day. And that's exactly the point of um, the Israelites when they went to the promised land. They're, they were supposed to drive out the Philistines because the Philistines would be a negative influence on them. And God didn't want them to be around the Philistines because God knew that they would lead them astray. So there is this like aspect in the Bible where the, the, my youth pastor, he's right. He's, it's true. Show me your friends and I'll show you who you are. And even I would say as, as David is so um, in, in with the Philistines at this point, he's becoming like them. and He's doing things that are not um, righteous. He's doing things that are not uh, godly. He's doing things that they would do. So there is truth in that, but there's also this strange, mysterious way that God brings people together in the church because we're all messed up and we need to be with people that are messed up because God is calling people of all flavors. God is calling people of all different types of status and ability and achievement and failures and warts and all, weaknesses and all. God is calling people from all walks of life to be a part of his church. He's not calling the perfect people. He's not calling the people who have it all together. He's calling the people who are messed up and screwed up. And Paul understood this too when he was talking to the Corinthians. The Corinthians thought that they were the best, pe the best people in the whole world because the Holy Spirit had been gifted to them. And they were boasting about it and they were prideful about it. And they were looking down on other people because they had the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes this to them. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Ouch. Not many of you were influential. Ouch. Not many were of noble birth. Ouch. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Who were you when you first became a Christian? And who are you now? I'm sure that your lives have changed and you've grown as people. But let's be honest. We're still messed up. We still have things inside that we're wrestling with and working, uh, working on. We can't look around and criticize other people. Even though we want to, we, we go to the church and we see other people in the church and we go, oh, these people are all hypocrites and oh, they're gossips and they're, oh, look what they did. And just like I want to criticize David, I also want to criticize people in the church who are not living up to this potential that I feel God has set for them. But I'm not perfect. I screw up 
I still make mistakes. I am not a sinless leader. I'm in the same boat as all these other people. We're all messed up. We're all screwed up. And the important thing, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus has done, what G- who Jesus is, and what Jesus is doing for you, and what Jesus is doing for others. In this story, and in many stories throughout the Bible, there is good news for us. We are saved. We are the distressed, the doubters, the, sorry, the debtors, the discontented, and we are saved. This is amazing news. Look at the uh, Lord's Prayer when, when Jesus says, this is how we should pray. Father, forgive us our debts. That's who we are. We're all debtors. We all owe so much to God. We all owe so much for the things we've done wrong. And Jesus forgives the debtors. But then this good news becomes hard news for us because forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. When we realize that we are just as messed up as anyone else in the A-team, that means that we need to stop judging others, looking down at others, thinking that we're better than other people. We need to start opening our eyes to see people how Jesus sees them. And accepting people as Jesus accepts them. It's not easy to do, but we do it by the grace of God. We do it by the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And sometimes we have these experiences like David, where we're thrown into a spiritual wilderness. Where we're in a dark time and we're with questionable people. We're doing questionable things. And in those moments, God is still with us. Perhaps he's even led us there to be a light those around us. Well, God's blessings upon you as you go from here, and uh, we'll see you next time. Mm